Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. Hello there. Happy Master's Week for those that celebrate. You could be several holes to several days in by the time you listen to this pod, uh, and I blew it. I could have had the best golfer in the alts industry on or something like that this week, except I don't know who that is. Uh, most of the fund managers I know don't golf. wonder why that is. Too much time coding, not enough time putting. Anyway, if you know a manager who is a great golfer, hit me up, DM me, whatever, and uh, we'll get them on. Figure out why that is. Uh, on to this episode. We're going back up the wealth ladder a step or two. Or is it down the wealth ladder? I'm not sure how that works. But uh, talking not about the managers managing the wealthy's money, not even talking about the liquid wealthy. We're talking with Bryce Emo, a longtime friend of mine and founder of Sidecar Finance, who helps the illiquid wealthy. Uh, what are those? Those are people with millions locked up in private stock and this or that unicorn tech company uh, looking to get some liquidity. A cool concept and surprisingly one that touches on a lot of what's going on in markets today. Uh, SVB's effect on the secondary market, how private buyers and lenders in this space do markdowns and follow public markets down, even if the private equity and VC marks don't, uh, and just what the tech rec last year did on both the buy and sell side of this market. Plus, we get to hear about Bryce talking about being a leprechaun and his own, and my own, half-baked ideas. It was fun. Send it. This episode is brought to you by RCM's Managed Futures Group and the newly released Rankings White Paper where we go through dozens of top-performing funds. Go check it out at rcmalts.com slash rankings, rcmalts.com slash rankings. Now, back to the show. Okay, everybody, we are here with my good friend Bryce Emo. What's up, Bryce? What's up, Jeff? Good to be on the show, bud. Yeah, good to see you. I haven't seen you since Sun Valley, Idaho. Did some skiing. It's been weeks, 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 uh, and you're calling in. Are you calling in? No, you're, no, you're zooming, zooming in. in from beautiful where? Mill Valley, California, just over the Golden Gate Bridge here. Bay Area. Uh, and that's where you can get like a $5 million house that doesn't have air conditioning. That's exactly right. It's a heck of a deal. <laughs> heck of a deal. <clears throat> get them while they're hot. Yeah. Get them while they're hot. What's the... Uh, it's because it's so nice there. It's like perfectly 65 all year round. Not this year. It's been so, in fact, this morning there was frost on the uh, the couch cushions outside. So it's been a really cold, wet winter, which we've welcomed given the drought in the recent past. Um, but I think we've had enough. This is where the saying, when it rains, it pours, must have come from. When it rains, it pours. Uh, so yeah, Bryce and I have known each other for 20 years, 15 years or so from when he used oh. to live in Chicago. Uh, he's one of the most interesting guys I know, including a brief stint as the mascot, as the leprechaun at Notre Dame. Tell us how that went down. Uh, yes, it's, um, you know, there's very few people that uh, are short enough to qualify. <laughs> really elite uh, kind of position. But uh, I spent my, my life, my early life as a gymnast. Um, and, uh, in kind of a yell leader, I guess, in, in, in high school, along with being a gymnast. And so when I ended up, ended up at Notre Dame, um, you know, my friends coaxed me into trying out for the leprechaun role and was thrilled to do it. Uh, at that time I was one of a couple of leprechauns. There's two every year then. And now I think there's six, there are so many different sports between men, women, uh, you know, basketball, volleyball, hockey, what have you football, of course, uh, to uh, to cover so it was a great time what and its name's just the leprechaun there's no like yeah. lucky the leprechaun or anything fun like that the leprechaun that's it that's it and how many games did you get to go to football games uh so i i covered women's sports mostly um as the junior guy so i did oh, uh, i yeah. did do the blue gold game but i can't say that i did a football game in notre dame stadium which is is something i would like to of course have had the experience to do but but wasn't in the cards um, but if I look back, you know, clearly I love being in the world of finance, but perhaps I should have focused coming out of college just on women's athletics, given the crazy trajectory of growth that, um, that it's enjoyed. And, and I think we'll continue to enjoy, um, in the coming decades. Yeah. You could have been owning a couple, uh, WNBA teams, had a okay. few women's soccer teams. 
That's right. Newly announced one here in San Francisco. Just um, what's your what's the deal with San Francisco? We just uh, elected this new mayor last night. Everyone's immediately putting up their houses for sale and thinking all the talk is like this is going to turn into San Francisco. Is it as bad as the national media portrays or still hanging in there? You know, I think that all cities are going through um, a point of change right now. You know, COVID exacerbated that just a, a little bit. But um, certainly, you know, San Francisco, uh, it, it's not a place where I spend a lot of time downtown. Um, and, and it's had a number of issues. But I think, you know, we were in Baltimore over the weekend. Baltimore is not a place where there's certain areas of downtown Baltimore you don't want to live, clearly. Um, so we'll, we'll see how San Francisco uh, plays out with the new mayor. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's tenuous for sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, and plus all the layoffs and all that. We're always talking about people, how they can invest, hedge funds they invest in after they've made their millions. You're sort of in this little in-between phase where they're on their way to making their millions or have their millions locked up, right? Correct. So uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Sidecar and what the what the 30,000-foot elevator pit. Sure. Two, I had two uh, different sayings in there mixed together 30,000 foot view yep. and the elevator pitch which i made into give me the 30,000 foot elevator <laughs> i like it you, uh, yeah. um, that's a hell of a pitch you get a 30,000 foot trade elevator. trademark coming trademark um, coming 30,000 foot elevator yes so uh sidecar finance is a um is a brokerage group um we're focused on helping private shareholders find buyers find lenders find uh, financial groups that'll do structured financings against private shares in private companies. Largely, it's multi-billion dollar companies, but um, especially with uh, the recent sell-off, of course, in technology and valuations being down from where they were, at least currently, um, more and more people are looking to do structured financings and what have you uh, to find a way to get liquidity. Um, so we're talking like Uber, before it went public, Airbnb, right. these kind of things, before, yep. pre, pre-IPO. Correct, correct. So, um, you know, stripes of the world, what have you, uh, are, are some examples of, you know, Flexport. Um, who else have we got? Uh, Discord is a popular name, right? These are companies that are worth billions and billions of dollars. Um, you've got thousands, some in some cases, of shareholders at those companies that are sitting on uh, paper money. The same way they would have in you know 1999, um, millions of dollars in most cases, um, and they have you know they're hoping the company might go public this year. They've got families, they've got um, different career goals, different life expectations and aspirations that they're trying to achieve, um, and largely they've got you know a, a very small salary, but millions of dollars in equity. So we help them find ways to get liquid on that equity so they can achieve some of these milestones that they're trying to achieve in their lives. And what in the old days wouldn't have been like, well, you're stupid. You shouldn't have chosen that profession where you didn't get paid, <laughs> right? Where it's all locked up and illiquid. So that's always weird to me of like, okay, you chose this. Why do you get to get it both ways? So what's the, what's the downside? They have to pay to get that liquidity. Yeah. So, um, you know, it will be interesting to see in the coming years, right? Uh, as you have super talented engineers, salespeople, product people, operations folks who have chosen to not go to large publicly traded companies and opted into startup companies with you know potentially more risk, right, and potentially more upside. It'll be interesting to see if that um, career path continues to hold especially as people see you know, psychologically to go from having, let's say $10 million in equity to then not being able to find a buyer that'll pay $3 million for it, um, which can happen in some of these cases. Um, psychologically, that's really hard. And, um, you know, it's, it, what would they say? It's harder to have won. Um, uh, what is it? What is the saying? Better to have it, loved and lost. Yeah, better to have loved on them a thirty thousand foot elevator. And from the thirty thousand foot elevator, that's right. 
Um, so it's, it's psychologically difficult on these people. And again, they're signing up, they're coming from grade schools, they have outstanding backgrounds, they're signing up for relatively low paying salaries, they're living in a hyper expensive area such as San Francisco many times, a good portion of the unicorn companies are out here, those certainly Silicon Beach and Silicon Valley and um, Austin, Texas are hotbeds for um, entrepreneurial activity and venture capital funded companies, um, but they're living in hyper expensive places. And, and it's trying on these people, right? You know, I have a, a guy that um, I spent some time with, let's say three years ago now, and he was sitting on uh, $5 million of stock. And he would drive a lift car to and from the office uh, to make money to send his son. Wait, to not take he a lift. He was a lift driver. Drive a lift. So yeah. be careful if you're be careful being mean to any Lyft or Uber drivers. You have no idea. There might be a multi-million dollar, you know, shareholder sitting in the front seat and, and that person's been able to get some liquidity. So they've changed, you know, paths. They're not they're not driving lifts anymore. But um, you know, it it's it's so often the case that these folks just don't have enough funds to meet the the needs of their daily lives. Which again is part of me is like, well, you screwed up, but also not because you have this huge, big portion of the company. So what it right. And actually in that example, if we play that out, right, Jeff. And so this person, you know, they spent 25 years in traditional industry and then kind mm -hmm. of on a whim took this opportunity. And if they had continued down their career path, maybe they would have made, you know, a hundred to $150,000 a year for the next, um, you know, 15, 20 years of working, right. Versus they went, they went, they took a job, they're at a company for five years, then their shares were worth 5 million. Now, even with the, you know, sell off in the tech market, those shares are still probably worth, call it $10 million. So yeah. for this worked out yeah. a lot of times it doesn't, right? Um, more often than not, it doesn't. Being able to pick these companies takes, uh, the co companies you're going to go work for takes um, a very astute person and, and, and a lot of luck sometimes. Which I'm going to jump all around here because that's what I do. But so you kind of ended up in this role because some of the companies you'd been at were didn't quite work out. Precisely. Well, they actually have, have worked out fine. Um, the reason why I came to these uh, to this space was 10 years ago, I needed, call it, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars to buy options in a company that I was leaving where I'd been the head of sales. Um, and then much more than that in tax. Tax. Um, is the greatest expense a shareholder will generally have when they're trying to exercise options. And many people, when they take these roles, don't understand just how expensive the tax and the cost of exercise is going to be. So 10 years ago, I needed a bunch of money. I had a choice to self-finance part of it or go to the secondary markets and find a, a lender or a buyer. At that point in time, 10 years ago, these markets were in their infancy, infancy. I mean, there were almost no players. Um, and I actually ended up not finding anyone at all uh, and end up having to, to self-finance that exercise and, and the tax. Uh, but I was captivated by him. And so I stayed engaged with them. I stayed engaged with some of the players in the space. Four years ago, when the co-founder of MySpace, where I prior ran sales at MySpace as well, I can talk about that a bit. Um, That's like a joke uh, now, right? But yeah. It, it's <laughs> a great joke. It was a social network for those of you who are, yeah. then, you know, 35 years old. <laughs> um and so, uh, you know, four years ago, co-founder of MySpace starts a company called Quid, which provides limited recourse advances against private shares, asked me to come on board uh, and, and build and run the sales organization there. So, um, so that's what brought me into this space four years ago. And after speaking with a thousand shareholders a year and hearing from them, one, a lack of knowledge about this space, a lack of knowledge about their equity and the stress level in their voices and the conundrums that they had, I knew there needed to be a third party who could sit with them alongside them and help them navigate this entire journey and figure out, should I do anything? Should I even buy these options? Can I get an right. extension? Should I sell shares? Should I take out a loan against my house? Should I take out, can I get a limited recourse transaction, et cetera? And so that's, um, that's where we are. A lot of people in my mind would be like, oh, just call your financial advisor. But per, they're at maybe the stage where they don't yet have a financial advisor or have the need for one because they're not throwing off tons of cash that gets invested. Yeah. So um, there are 
financially, certainly, you know, now we're going to talk about public stocks versus private stocks. So these are yeah. private stocks. These are stocks that um, are illiquid for the most part. And so it makes it very hard for traditional banks to be able to give you any value or advance against that because there's so much risk. The folks um, who are able to get advances or loans against private shares are largely C-level executives, founders of companies. And the reason why these banks are willing to do it is they'll do it almost as a trade for winning their wealth advisory business, maybe yeah. the opportunity to take the company public, what have you. Um, you know, there's a, a number right, of just, groups. It's going to be a $50 million client five years from now. I'm willing to take the yeah, risk we'll on give the you loan. 3 million today. And, and the loan to value ratios, meaning how much they'll advance you against your shares. Let's say if you had a hundred million dollars, they might only advance you five or 10 million versus some of the other players in the space today might provide you 20 million or in the heyday, or I don't know if it's heyday, but a year ago, you know, maybe they would have provided you $30 million. And so um, traditional banks really aren't that active in this space for employees that aren't a owner of a company, a founder of a company, a very high level ranking person at the company. So when you even get into VPs of, you know, sales or, or, um, you know, uh, VPs of, of, uh, legal or, or ops people, a lot of those people can't get those loans from a traditional bank. And yet they might still have 10, 50, a hundred million dollars, $200 million of stock. And again, they've got milestones they're trying to achieve in their life that, that they don't have the resources to do. The, so this talking about the traditional banks, so Silicon Valley Bank, were people like that, these regionals, especially in that area of the world, more yes. willing to do these loans? Yes, there's a number of, of people who, you know, in the space who were who are willing to do these loans. And and I don't think it's definitely not isolated to um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and again, these are relatively low loan to value um loans, right? Uh so there should be, you know. Theoretically, there's a lot of coverage there. Theoretically. So, um, and tell me that level again. What was it? 5%? Might be 5 to 10% kind of, of of the value of the, um, of the stock. And it's going to, it's going to range certainly based on, um, based on the person, based on the company, yeah. uh, right? If you're, if you're dealing with a company that doesn't have any revenue, well, it's going to be really hard to get a loan anytime. Right. If you're dealing with a company that has a billion dollars in revenue, you know, growing by 50% year over year, that's, you know, theoretically going to be uh, a company where, where lenders will be more active. Why aren't the companies themselves helping these people out? Right. It seems like they're just kind of out on an island and trying to find people like you to be like, hey, somebody help me figure all this out. Should I take these up? Should I not? It seems like the companies are a little at fault of like, Hey, you're a billion dollar plus company. Help take care of your people and tell them what to do here. Yeah. So, um, you know, think about companies. They want people to work hard. They want people to um, be very tightly tethered to the success, the vision, mission of these companies. And the way they do that is equity. That's why there's a, um, you know, the potential to, you know, have a win a windfall of cash yeah super big carrot yeah. yeah if you can super big carrots good way to put it. whether you can achieve that or not it's it's uncertain um and so that carrot they'd rather you know it's like the dog track you know if if the dogs ever get woody the little guy who's running out in front of them it's a disaster right dog never yeah. runs again so <laughs> i think that's what i think that's what companies are scared of one two they're dealing with, um, you know, it's a little bit of a Pandora's box, right? As soon as you say, hey, cool, you guys can go sell shares. Now the head of legal, the head of finance, the head of operations, the CEO, they're managing a lot of complexity. They've got to decide who they'll let in and who they won't. Now you have many more people to manage on the, on the cap table. And so it just adds to the complexity. It's a distraction, what have you. More companies... Um, you know, up until let's say a year ago when these markets, when the buyers um, started to, you know, be less active, um, more companies were starting to do tender offers, right? So, hey, it's sponsored by the company. 
Um, here's the price. We know the investor. You guys have 30 days, 60 days to decide if you want to participate or not. You can sell 10% of your shares, 15% of your shares, 25% of your shares, um, and get enough funds to be able to either exercise your options. If that's something that you want to achieve, maybe you want to go to another company, or maybe just want the peace of mind of owning your stock. Maybe the 409A or the fair market value is low. And so you want to take advantage of that. Um, or you want to buy a house, um, take care of a loved one, you know, pay for school, what have you. So companies still- are more open to this than they've been in the past. You know, this topic five years ago, if you brought it up to a CFO or a head of, of, of legal, they had an allergic reaction, right? <laughs> like didn't want to hear about it, didn't want to deal with it. And now it's become something that companies are willing to discuss, which is great. And they're willing to act on um, so long as it's kind of within their within their parameters. And I think the reason why they're open to it is they've realized there's a competition for the best talent in the tech space, right? And engineers, product people, salespeople, revenue people, operate ops folks, when they come to a company, they're saying, are there scheduled liquidity events? It's great that you're giving me all this stock. How am I, how am I going to realize the value? Or are you telling me that you're giving it to me now? I've got to earn it over four years, and I'm probably, you know, not going to see a liquidity event for five or seven years. If so, I've got to plan my life around that. And so that's a question that these senior level people are asking when they go into companies. And of course, that's then causing the CEO to say to the CFO, "Hey, we got to we got to come up with a plan for this. We got to have a solution." And <clears throat> How does the VC community feel about it? If they're fine with it, keep the keep the employees happy. Like to your point, and there were a few platforms that popped up where they were right. people could actually sell their shares in some of these, right? Right. Um, but that as you're saying, required the company and legal, everyone to get involved, probably the VCs as well, like, hey, don't dilute our shares. Um so most companies will have what's called a, a right of first refusal, a rofer, right? So if I'm a employee at a company and I've got shares that I own, I want to sell them. I go to the company and they've got a 30 day right of first refusal often. It's become kind of standard language in a lot of different employment agreements. So and standard, so, it has a little term, ROFR. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they've got an acronym for it. It's great. Al ROFR. Um, and so um, they'll come to the company and they'll say, okay, Jane Doe wants to sell shares in XYZ company. The company says, okay, great. Let me, um, let me figure out if we're going to, we have the right to, let's say they're going to sell them at $10 a share. The company has 30 days to decide if they, or one of their investors essentially wants to buy them at $10. If not, then they say, no, you're good. Either they can say one of three things. Hey, you're not allowed to transfer these shares. Um, two, we're buying these shares or three, we're not going to buy them. You can transfer them, you know, go ahead and, and do this uh, this trade with this third party and we'll give you the forms and, and the legal docs that, that we have already approved that you'll fill out for that transaction. And that's part of your business can even do those, right? You're not just setting up the lending, but it's it's a whole suite of like, hey, here's the, yeah. what are the options that they could take? What are the doors? Yeah, so, so you know, 90% of people want to sell and we help them find buyers. And then we manage the paperwork um, around that transaction as well. Um, and that's interesting to me of like, why that seems like a super high number to me that they're not like, no, I want to stay invested and I'm believe in the future of the company. They're just like, get me out of here. Give me cash. Well, if you think many of these folks that I speak with, they've got 60, 70, 90% of their personal wealth tied up in these companies, right? They want yeah. diversification. <laughs> um, they want to be, um, they want to not not just for financial purposes, almost for psychological purposes. Yeah, right? because they're seeing anytime you work at a company, whether it's a hyper successful company or not, there are bumps in the road, right? And so when you hit those bumps, you hit those speed bumps. Um, you know, you get a little rattled, and when ninety five percent of your wealth is in a company, you get even more rattled. And so um, they mainly they want to diversify and, and just take the assets and put them in different asset classes or in different hyper growth companies. There's, you know, exchange funds that are popping up where people can trade XYZ shares and 
XYZ shares for ABC shares, mm-hmm. um, which is something that that that's a clever do. idea. Of like, hey, two of these stressed out ninety five percent, or so let's swap some of our shares so we're yeah. diversifying ourselves. I like that. Um, so that's door number one. Door number two. Yeah, door number two is there are probably five or six groups in the in the space that will provide what's called limited recourse advances. The way they market them in the industry is non-recourse loans. But if you're talking to a lawyer, you'd probably call them a limited recourse advance uh, <laughs> for a couple of reasons. One, they're generally not loans. They're actually prepaid variable forward contracts. Um, and so, and there's a number of reasons why people do those. Uh, and so it's actually an advance against your equity. So if you've got $10 million in a company, in a private company, these folks will provide you anywhere from 20%, call it the 30% of the value of your equity um, at a price they deem. A year and a half ago, it was at the last preferred price, but with valuations in the public markets coming down, you know, buyers are trying to comp against those public market um, stock prices to a certain degree in order to give themselves some advantage uh, and to get it right for their LPs and for their investors, right? They have a fiduciary op- uh, obligation to do that. And so uh, long story short, against $10 million in shares, you'll, you'll be able to get, you know, call it, you know, two to $3 million from one of these yeah. not recourse or limited recourse, you know, finance. And what is, what, what's the, so just stick with the non-recourse for a second. They're basically saying, Hey, even if the stock goes to zero, you don't owe us, you only owe us the 2 million back. That's right. Your recourse is limited to the value of your shares. Yeah. Um, it, so it, right. If the I'm, value of your shares. So if your shares are worth a hundred K you pay back a hundred K that's right on a $10 million, you know, piece of stock, if you've got $10 million in equity, you get advanced, you know, two and a half million dollars if the stock goes to a hundred thousand. So long as you don't violate any of their, you know, bad actor clauses in your contract, you owe them a hundred thousand back, not two and a half million. Hmm. So it's for, for people who are saying, look, I think this thing could go you know, could increase tenfold or even, you know, twofold, right? Um, but there's a chance it could go to zero. It's an interesting way to to play the market. And you'll see people uh, maybe not do this with all their shares, but as a strategy. So they might sell some shares. They might take a limited recourse transaction, advance against some of their shares um, to kind of, you know, provide themselves optionality. Yeah. But then there's a yield on that? There maybe. is. So... The, those companies aren't doing it for free, no doubt. <laughs> right. um, That'd be it, a bad uh, business. And, and most of them are are backed by, you know, wealthy family offices, hedge funds, distressed credit groups, what have you. Um, and so, you know, usually those folks are going to pay anywhere from a eight to twelve percent annual, you know, rate, which is kind of a percentage, right? Um, and then they'll also pay a percentage of their shares. So against that ten million dollars of stock they might you know relinquish 10 or 15% of that value mm-hmm. so if i've got 10 million dollars of stock at a two and a half million dollar advance i might be paying you know 80 to 100,000 uh, dollars or 80 to 120,000 dollars a year for the duration of the you know transaction um, and then i might also be paying if it's if they're charging me 15% of my equity i might be paying a million and a half in equity so if that's if that stock goes to being worth twenty million, I don't owe them a million and a half of equity. They actually get three million dollars of equity. So it's a it's a pretty unique space, um, and uh, and the fees can be significant. But you know, if you were to sell your shares at ten million dollars, and and the stock doubled, you'd miss out on ten million dollars of upside. So you really have to weigh. Um, yeah, exactly. The pros and cons of both of those, and that's what we do at Sidecars. We'll build these financial models or retrofit them that looks at, and we'll look at what are the cost of these transactions? What are your exit expectations, time and price? And based on these variables, what might be interesting options for you? And then we'll go find lenders and buyers who who will transact. Right. In that case, like, hey, hey, I think we're going IPOing in a 18 months. Maybe I'm willing to pay the 12%. If it's 60 months, probably not. Something right. like that. Like, hey, there's there's real time here now the nice um, thing is that that annual rate is uh and the equity fee um is pick so you pay that generally at the end so the, uh, got it. the design of these though. products the goal is hey we've got these people 
They've got a lot of equity. They've got very little of their own funds, right? They can't be out of pocket during the course of this transaction because there's no money. Yeah, yeah. So, it's it's similar to how it works in the agriculture world, actually. Like, hey, these farmers don't have the money. They planted their crops. They have everything. Advance them against when the crop comes in, when it sells. And instead of giving them $10 million for the crop, we give them $9 million and net out the financing and everything we did for them during yeah, the that's, growing season. It's a great corollary. Yeah. Uh, is there a door number three? How many doors are there? Door, door number three is, um, and I say this to people all the time, if you're bullish on the trajectory of the company and where you think it's you know, going to have an exit and you're going to be able to get liquid, and you have publicly traded stock, if you're sitting on you know, $5 million worth of publicly traded stock, talk to your wealth advisor about taking out a, um, a, a margin loan, right? Yeah. Like it's going to be your cheapest cost of capital. Uh, so long as things go well for the company. Um, so that's certainly an angle that we'll look at. Um, there are groups that, uh, you know, if you can't find a limited recourse provider, I have non-traditional lenders that I work with that if you've got, you know, $50 million worth of stock, they'll provide you, you know, 10 to $15 million as a loan um, because yeah. you might never be able to get a loan from, from any of the traditional players. So there's and that's like that. private credit hedge funds and groups like that. That's exactly what it is. Yep. So that's, that's another angle. Um, and then there are, there are even people that will do structured financing. So they'll say, okay, investors in the space are willing to pay $10. The last round of capital was raised at 20. We'll pay you 15, right? So you're getting a premium, but we want a guaranteed return. So we want, you know, 15% per year, 20% per year for the duration of the loan. And we're going to have you collateralize additional shares in case, in case you, you don't meet that, in case we don't get that return. And in that case, instead of delivering us the number of shares you're supposed to, you'll deliver us more. Hmm. So there's um, a lot of different flavors of these prepaid variable forwards, forward contracts, structured financings uh, in the space. Um that are floating thus, around. Thus the need for someone to help them figure it all out. Exactly. Aha. Uh -huh. Anyone doing the Mark Cuban straddle, basically? Are you familiar with what he did? I, I've heard of it, but but maybe, um, you well, know. He, and this is third-hand knowledge yeah. of reading it 20 years ago or whatever, but in theory, Yahoo paid him a billion dollars for his AM radio online broadcast company, whatever it was called. And he and was like, sold. he bought a bunch of what put options, right? No, he basically said, these guys are idiots, right? Yeah. If they think this thing is worth a billion dollars and he yeah. got it in Yahoo stock. So he went to Goldman, I believe, and said, hey, um, basically, you can have everything over $1.1 billion and I'll want nothing less than $900 million. So yeah. He basically gave up all the upside and said, guarantee me $900 million. And they're like, right in the peak of the internet boom they're like sold idiot you're giving up all your yeah. upside and yeah. locking in the downside so you know i think a year later his stock was worth maybe like a hundred million dollars um but he yeah. was left there with 900 million you know I, I guess if you look at these limited recourse transactions they're basically <laughs> saying hey give us all the money today right yeah yeah and if stock goes to zero we'll pay we'll, we'll hand you the stock yeah uh, right here you go so similar <laughs> So something piqued my interest here, and this is a big debate currently in these, like as a general topic, let's dive into like how the market has changed over the last yes. year with NASDAQ down, whatever it's down, 20%. Um, inside of that narrative is the other narrative, like, hey, private equity hasn't marked down at all. Right. Right. And so I don't know in the venture capital world if they're doing the same thing in terms of like, they're not really marking down these investments at all. But it seems like you're saying inside these mechanisms it's getting marked down a lot right so um, like how does that jibe with like hey we're only going to lend to you at 10 percent of this because we don't we, either the values come down we can see it even if the last sale like you're saying the last sale was at a billion dollar valuation right. we think it's now a hundred million valuation so inside of these mechanisms you have um i'd say a year and a half ago the advance rates were you know 
30 to 40% in some cases against um, high revenue late stage companies that are well known, right? Yeah. Um, today, they might be 20%. So you've just decreased your advance rate by call it 70% and you've held your rates the same or increased them. So you've achieved the same thing you essentially would by marking down the stock. Um, and you've done this so you can hopefully better protect your investors. Um, so clearly in the secondary markets, you know, a year and a half ago, it was a firmly a, um, a seller's market. There are multiple buyers in many cases for, for sellers uh, if they wanted to sell. Um, there's a lot of pressure on sellers. As of last, call it January, February, March, right? As the NASDAQ started to sell off, um, buyers became much more quiet uh, because they didn't know what the right price was, right? Um, they just bought a bunch of shares theoretically over the previous few years yeah. uh, in companies um, and their LPs were looking at them and saying, whoa, did we way overpay there? And they were saying, we don't know yet. And so... Uh, the market, the secondary market was very quiet, I'd say last April, May, and really kind of May through December. And what happened was you got a, a big disconnect in the bid ask spread. So I saw a chart that said, um, you know, generally the bid ask spreads 10 to 15% in secondary markets. It kind of spiked at like 40% hmm. last half of last year. And so just very few transactions were getting done. Sellers didn't believe that they should be selling at lower levels, even if they needed the money. Buyers were we're mostly just not in market. And yeah, if so- Hands they, in their pockets, we call it. Right. Yeah. They, they, no, they, bid. no bid. No uh, for, bid for a couple of reasons. Um, one was they didn't know what the right price was, right? The big institutions who might have, um, uh, you know, they might have agreements with their LPs that they can only hold so much uh, in private stock versus public stock. Um, you know, they, they couldn't really add to their private positions aggressively because their public um, positions had sold off. So if I could have, you know, if I could only oh, have 20% private and 80% public, if that 80% public was now worth 50, you know, 50% of what it was, then I can't add to my private position. So the, the institutions are really quiet in crossover funds. Um, coming That's into an interesting year, dynamic. Sorry that I hadn't thought about of like if private equity doesn't get marked down you have this imbalance of when the liquid stuff gets marked down of like, now you're overweight, the illiquid. Right. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you, what you're saying? And so, um, you know, the institutions were certainly more quiet, though still selective, right? In companies at good prices, et cetera. Coming into this year, the secondary markets uh, really started to pick up in January, February. You saw more buyers, more bids, found salaries that were, willing to come down. I think that they had, you know, uh, drank some truth serum, you know, the last half of last year, because there were fewer buyers. Um, and so you know, things seem to be picking up and then you, you hit Silicon Valley bank and, and the regional bank, um, you know, uh, schmozzle, I'd say, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what a good word is for it. And so, um, that's caused over the course of the last month buyers to be, taking their time, even if they were in advanced kind of uh, discussions with sellers or um, in process, um, they're not saying no, they're just being more cautious. And, um, and also it, it's causing sellers to be more interested in selling, right? Yeah. This added risk is, 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 is creating um, some urgency for sellers to get liquid if they think they want liquidity. Um, to hit some of those milestones they're they're reaching for. And who are some of these institutional buyers? Like uh, without naming names, but like large banks, yeah, pensions, I mean, endowments, large, kind of... large VCs who represent all those people, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, generally speaking. So there's a few different groups. You've got um, multi, you know, family offices, multifamily offices, worth hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, what have you, who are active in this space buying. You have um, hedge funds that are active in the space. You've got VCs that will have secondary desks that are actively buying and selling in the space, right? Um, and, and same is true for every, every one of those groups is selling as well. And, and do they, they look have, at it as like, hey, I missed the last round, 
but here's a way to get in at the same price or even better? Yeah, I think what what you're seeing is some of these institutions who've already done diligence for the last several years, they know the company, right? They still yeah. they they're still seeing marks, they're still seeing the progress of the company. The company's still growing, right? Um, they're still innovating. Um, and they're like, well, you know, I paid ten dollars a year ago. Should I be willing to pay, you know, five dollars or six dollars now? Um and if they still like the company, they want to have those conversations. Yeah. What uh, two thoughts on all these? Do you feel like this is an indicator at all? Is it a leading or lagging indicator? You think? I would say the secondary markets, in my opinion, lag the the public markets by a, a month or more. Right. And I'll give you an example. So last August, August September, I feel like the market um, gained some ground. Right. I think there was a, yeah. there was a you know, market came up a little bit. And so then in September, you started to see buyers in the secondary market come back about three or four weeks later. Right. And then the market sold off again. And then buyers are like, oh, never mind. Let me put my hands back in my pockets. I was joking. No. Um, and so, you know, I think I don't know that um, that it's a leading indication indicator per se, but I do think at some point we'll hit a place where these funds who like the secondary markets, who believe in the growth of these companies and believe that you know, you've got what, 1200 unicorn companies plus now, um, that these are gonna be the companies who, who continue to evolve and lead and change the world. And they wanna be in these companies and, and they'll start to buy them again. Especially, it's so funny to me always, yeah, right. like, no matter how, sophisticated the investor how much money they're still always performance chasing right Perfect. so it's like oh we started to go up i'm in i'm buying let me see it oh we went down i'm back scared um and so talk about that landscape is that is that the max number how many unicorns do we have right like i look at all these stocks right like peloton and snowflake and all these things that were down 80 percent at their lows right at some point last year Right. So part of me thinks like, oh, we the model oh, yes. broke and like this tech company innovator model is is overdone and everyone rushed in and got their faces ripped off. So like what are your overall views of like that's just part of the process or are we going to keep going? Are there going to be five thousand unicorns? Well, at some point it, it all comes back to supply and demand, right? So if you have a great company, um, a, a great private company that's growing fast, that's doing a lot of revenue, that's just, it's a leader in the space, what have you. If the company goes to raise capital, there might only be a few or maybe 10, you know, people who get in on that round, yeah. right? So when, when there's such scarcity, your choice becomes you know, if you want access, you may have to pay up to get it. And theoretically that, you know, that occurs. Um, and then I'd say in the secondary market, the same will theoretically be, be true as well, right? Um, right now there's more sellers than buyers, but in a normal market or in a market like, you know, even in a neutral market, there should be more of an equilibrium reached and you, and you would, um, you would expect that if there's more demand, right? Yeah. That, that and less supply, prices prices will change accordingly. But it, yeah, and I'm asking more like yeah. ignore yeah. your business and just think of the whole tech industry as a whole, right? Of we did we go too far in like oh we were growing users or we have this many app downloads and that's what our valuation is based on instead of actually revenues and profitability and and whatnot. And did that get all these unicorns to their valuations? which then got cut in half. So like, did we go too far in some of those metrics where it should have been different? Yeah, um, it's it's probably a better question for a person who's steeped in what the appropriate multiples are for different asset classes, right? So oh, if you're you, steeped. Like, yeah. the, 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 the multiples on some of these companies were what, 80, 100X on what existing or forward revenue? Yeah. And if you look at the public markets, you have to say, has that has that ever held for a long period of time? Is it sustainable? Will investors at large back that? 
right? Um, and you and and so I think the answer you find is it's unlikely that that be, can become steady state in the in, in the public markets, right? Right. Um, but the, it, the flip side, if I'm one of those investors or VCs, are like that doesn't apply because we're looking for the next unicorn. That's why they're named unicorn. Well, I think that's and I think yeah. that's right. What, what's hard for these investors is look. The company's growing at, let's say, 300x, right? Because yeah. there are companies that are growing that fast sometimes in the public markets. And then you try to figure out, okay, well, gosh, this isn't, you know, you start to look at TAM, total addressable market. This is a massive market. How big is the opportunity here? Okay, I can actually justify paying up right now or paying a high multiple because I think there's an enormous TAM and the incumbents aren't kind of paying attention or they're not uh, well-equipped to, to, to move in the way that this disruptor is going to move. Um, and, and so in that case, these folks who spend a lot of time, right? I mean, these venture capitalists, they, they, they hire some of the best and brightest people um, theoretically have gone some of the top schools, um, uh, you know, to work for them and, and are looking at these nonstop. What, what's the, are the VCs a uh it wasn't bad <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah i yeah. just want like part of me yeah, i mean look the system it, it rolls and then it breaks it rolls and it breaks yeah. so yeah. We're like if we're in a breaking period now and then will the next level of all these employees not get the stock options because now they're scared or they heard a horror story of a right like oh i got all those stock options i had to pay a bunch of tax and then a year later it was worth zero or it was worth half yeah which, which is certainly, if you look at, you know, the bust in 1999, right, or 2000 or whenever it happened, right, when all these folks, um, you know, I, I talk to them weekly, people who are at very senior levels of these companies now who lived through 1999, 2000, who are like, oh my gosh, I bought my options, I paid the tax, the stock wasn't worth anything, I still have a carry forward, right, yeah. on my loss. And so those people, what did they do? They went to mainstream companies for a while, right? Uh, they went to publicly traded companies and, and you know Microsoft and Apple and some of these groups who then, by the way, had tremendous innovation. So it'll be interesting to follow. And tremendous employees. stock comp as well. Even yeah, I mean, like, yeah. it'll be interesting to follow where do these employees who've worked at these disruptor companies, if they've been let go or if they've decided to leave the company, what is the type of company they go to work for now and which are the companies they go to work for now? And, and will they be able to cause the same kind of drive the same kind of innovation and growth at those companies or are those ecosystems, you know, not open to, uh, you know, these types of disruptor right. people. And, and, and so they'll become frustrated and eventually they'll say, you know what, I worked at this start my own thing. Again. I worked at this startup company, and even though I didn't make a lot of money, gosh, I had a lot of fun. It was a really cool experience. I felt like I was making a difference and doing something. And what what there's been tons of layoffs in the tech space. Do you talk to some yeah. of those people? How does that work? Do I lose my stock options? I keep them. They get marked down. What? How does that all look? Yeah, it's it's different at every company. So um, when you when you join a company, you know, you'll generally sign something like a stock option agreement. Um, and so, or an equity plan, and that will say, it'll, it'll talk about how long you have, if you leave the company to purchase your options or purchase your equity. Mm -hmm. In some cases, you know, that's only 90 days. So those are the people who come in like, okay, I got to do something fast. And actually a lot of those people will come to us before they're leaving and say, I'm thinking a lot of people are reaching out to me. I'm kind of thinking about maybe leaving. Um, what's the market like? What are my options? Can we start to have some of those conversations so that when I go to the company and resign, I know what I'm going to do. I know if I actually have golden handcuffs or not, yeah. right? Do I have to stay? I'm going to forfeit millions of dollars in equity or is there an option to buy my options and pay the tax? So, um, Standard, I wouldn't say standard, a lot of companies have 90 day policies. What I'm seeing is companies who are doing, um, you know, who are downsizing or letting some people go, right sizing, however you want to, you know, term it based on the company. Um, some of them are extending the window. So instead of giving them 90 days, they're saying, we'll give you two years, we'll give you five years, 
will give you more than that to exercise your options, which hopefully means company can get public and they can do a cashless exercise or something like this where, um, you know, they don't come out of pocket to buy the options uh, and pay the tax. The company just keeps a portion of the shares to cover those expenses. And then in the case of a layoff, what does it look like? Who knows? Basically the same thing. They don't work for the yeah, company. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the same thing, right? So so those companies that are doing some layoffs, some of them are saying, you know, we're going to, instead of 90 days, you got two years or you got five years. So as to not put pressure on the employees and also not put pressure on the market, right? If you all of a sudden have 400 or 300 employees that are coming to the market saying, you know, we want to sell shares or I need a loan to buy my options. There's not enough buyers in many names to to support that, and so the price goes down, you know, significantly. Where it can. You say anything funny when you talk about options on options? Um, no, but it's it's something that I should add to my daily agenda. Yes. Yeah, add to your um, <laughs> my repertoire. Your repertoire. Wrap us up. What? What are some of the biggest pitfalls some of these people see if you wish, like if you see a story and you're like, oh, I wish I could have talked to them. I could have saved them from doing X and screwing that up. Yeah. Um, one is they don't talk to, and this is just generally speaking, shareholders um, who haven't been through this before, most who have been through it understand, they, are, they think to themselves, yeah, I've got $10 million in stock, but I, I'm not wealthy yet. So like I shouldn't engage a wealth advisor to help me plan for if the company's going public, or right. I shouldn't be talking to an accountant yet or a lawyer yet, or I shouldn't be talking to someone in the secondary markets. And then they get to these critical points where it's like, you got 90 days to exercise your options or companies going public in a couple months and I don't have a plan. And that creates a ton of stress for them. So I just say, you know, it's like, get help early. These resources want to talk to you. They will take your phone calls. Um, they will um, help you start to come up with a game plan. Um, so don't don't sell yourself short if you're an employee at one of these hyper growth unicorn companies. People will talk to you. So that's one. Two. Um, don't don't sell yourself short. You're an incredible slouch. You're an incredible slouch. <laughs> <laughs> um, so two is, uh, you know, especially in this market, people are are they'll sit on decisions, right? Sellers. And I've seen this happen in the last month. Financial markets are uncertain, and if the secondary market's going to find going to um, uh, you know follow the the public markets, you have to realize that you may be considering a transaction, and that a week later the markets could significantly change, and the risk profile could significantly change, and those buyers or lenders could go away, right? And so, um, you know, do your diligence. Make sure you have the right resources to make a, a, a informed decision, but you know, be aware that some of these options, these liquidity options, can can come into play and, and disappear almost. You know, in some cases, on a dime, right? right? So, stuff that's happened with the regional banks, for sure, there were people, buyers and lenders, who were willing to to do transactions, and once those things happened, three days later, they're like. We got to wait. We're out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're out. We're, we're at least on the sidelines for a little bit until we understand more of, of what's going on. We saw that in crypto back in the day when it was 50, 60,000. The, working with these groups like, hey, we're trying to, can you help us design an algorithm to get out of the crypto without paying too much in bid ask? And we were doing it and they're like, sure, but you just waited five days for that and it fell $10,000, right? You would have been better just to hit the other side of the bid offer spread. Well, and and, this, and not be at risk for five days while you're figuring it out. That's right. And the same thing happened in crypto. Um, uh, what's the big group that went out of business? Uh, a couple of them, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, SBF. Um, yeah. You know, just after that happened, you know, I'm working with with folks that work for crypto companies. Same thing. Buyers and lenders are like, we got to wait. We we don't know what's going to happen here. Um, investors don't like uncertainty, right? Generally yeah. speaking, unless unless uh unless that's the design of their of their structure and while we mention it how did that look with crypto was that part of the demand for a little while and yeah, would crypto. those loans get paid out in crypto or no. in in same hard thing cash? 
yeah. US dollars. Yeah. Or, or, you know, with many of these contracts, you can either pay, pay in stock or cash, check your legal agreements because it's different for every vendor. Um, but for sure, I mean, crypto, the secondary markets, as well as the financial markets at times can follow buzzwords, right? And so AI is super, you know, it's, it's, I think I read an article recently that it's the most searched for, um, you know, keyword on Google or something, right? Yeah. So investors are talking about AI. Um, when crypto is, you know, popular in, in, in the news every day, investors are talking about um, crypto and they wanted to look at companies and opportunities in that space. And so, um, you know, you, you have to, uh, to be aware of like these cycles that they're not going to last. <laughs> Oftentimes they don't last forever. Um, and that, the, and that the only certainty is change generally. The, um, what's your thoughts on AI? Have you used chat GPT? You know, it's interesting. So, uh, we were just, um, you know, we've got, I don't know if we talk about kids or not, but we've got, you know, kids that are the same age. And so, um, you know, I was going into high school and, and in touring schools the last couple months, every single school brought up AI and how they're going to combat um, AI being used, uh, you know, by students in ways that are allowed, that are not allowed. How is it going to change the face of education? Um, it's, it's interesting to me. They didn't say how they're going to embrace it, how they're going to combat it. Well, they did actually, they did say, um, they did say, you know, they're trying to, they're, they're looking to hire people that are consultants that, that are experts in the space to help them figure out where it's going and how they might use it. Um, I mean, AI, it could be a, a huge game changer. Um, and it'll be interesting to see when I look at it, I think, well, boy, that makes soft skills really important in life, right? It makes yeah. communication skills super important. A lot of the things you go, you know, we send our kids to, to good schools to learn, right? And to um, and to refine. Um, but I think that AI, generally speaking, it's it it could really be, um, you know, put you out of business. Right? Like, hey, ingest we'll my options, my stock comp contract. Tell yeah. me what the best solution is. There, certainly, there there could be AI features built into that. Um, but again, you know, any of these, it, it's tough to just go for a buzzword. You really have to understand uh, what the the pros and cons are to some of these, um, you know, movements and and cycles. I want to close out and do a segment that I didn't warn you for half-baked ideas. You have some of the best half-baked ideas. I'm in second place. Um, you were the first one to ever tell me like, Hey, why doesn't Uber just like have a red screen with the McDonald's logo on it? And then the driver seat looks for red. That was brilliant. They never, they did do <laughs> yeah. the color, but they didn't monetize it. Right. They're not selling ads. Right. On it. Yeah. So well, it's like, Hey, I'm the guy with the purple phone, right? Come find me. Uh, right, purple matches to Duncan or whatever brand, right? Yes, that's exactly yeah. right. That's I exactly. I remember right. you had a, you had the brands, you had everything. That was brilliant. So, give me your top three half baked ideas. I think mine at the time, with to counter your uh, Uber one, was the foldable pocket helmet for when I'm riding on the uh, Divi bikes and the shared bikes in in cities like this. And I just want to pop oh, it out and like a. That's a great idea. Yeah. Then, right. Because I want to wear a helmet. I don't want to carry a helmet into the office around downtown. Um, but then people are like, how are you going to make it rigid? I'm like, I'm just the idea guy. I don't, right. I'm not yeah. the execution guy. You, you guys figure out how to make it work. So, um, I'll, I'll share a couple ideas. One is, um, this is one actually you might use in some way, shape or form. If you can get it by compliance, it's called drunk elevator. Okay. Nice. Yes. So it's almost like, <laughs> can we it, uh, change it to drunk 30,000 foot elevator? Drunk 30,000 foot elevator. Perfect. Um, and so the idea is this is you get, um, you know, executives at companies or heads of sales in an elevator after they've had a few cocktails. And then they've got basically the elevator ride to give the pitch on their business because all of these companies make their businesses sound super complex. So nobody yeah. understands them. 
but if they could simplify it, then a lot more people would would kind of get it. So that's one. Well, that's uh, this... the classic elevator, but, but they have to be drunk. So it has to be. Right. Yeah. And they're trying to sell each other. It's the same people in the company or from different companies? No, it's like you're recording it. Oh, oh, it's like a it. show. Like the, oh, I love it. Yeah, right. yeah, like the show. Like here's a here's Drunk Elevator. Here's a one and a half minute video on all these different companies. The person's giving the, like their, their elevator pitch. I don't know if you watch Drunk History, but it's a pretty entertaining show. I, this might be a new podcast I do. I love it. All right. Drunk Elevator. Done. Drunk Elevator. Um, I, and, and by the way, I'm working on a prototype of this. Uh, the first one wasn't great, but we're going to do another run. Um, it is a motion activated speaker that sits on the back of your toilet. So when you walk into a bathroom, it just starts playing music. And oh, this already, the device doesn't, well, the device probably isn't very hard to create. Um, when I went into a Dairy Queen, we were in, uh, where was it? Uh, I think central, uh, Indiana. Yeah. I went to a Dairy Queen bathroom and was Warren Buffett in there? Yeah. Yeah. and I was, and Warren's in there and he says, Hey Bryce, take a seat. I, I got something to say. No. So, um, the experience of having music playing in a bathroom is so, so much more pleasant. Oh yeah. And Loosens the bowels. Yeah. It does. You know, it just like, I think everyone's more comfortable with each other. Maybe somebody's whistling, humming, what have you. So uh, that's my second idea. I got to send you the link. We got stocking stuffer for Christmas. The kids' bathroom has a little LED motion-activated LED light that goes like inside the bowl. Oh. And, and it changes colors every time. So one time it, the water and everything's this nice blue, then it's a pink, then it's a yellow. Uh, maybe there's not yellow because that has a different meaning in the bathroom. But yeah. On St. Patty's Day, I assume that's green. green. It just, yeah, you know, it's I don't know hard. if it's that smart. I think it just randomly <laughs> alternates, but yeah. Wait for AI, yes. Yes, AI-assisted light toilet. All right, what do you got next? Uh, I don't know if I have a third offhand. What have you got? Jeff, you got any big ideas right now? I And I stole this from the Bill Simmons podcast, by the way. He does one every year. Um, I'll share the one he's, his guest had, which was, why in the NFL, a guy should catch the ball and say, like, I didn't catch it. I didn't catch it. Like, <laughs> demonstrably do that. So the other team uses one of their challenges and challenges <laughs> that he didn't catch it. But the replay is like, oh, he, he definitely <laughs> caught it. So a little gameplay, game theory to be like, get rid of that. Um, good, the, um, mine would be. Well, that's so a last brain time, I like that. Last time we were hanging out or not. Two times ago, we were in Napa with you, and um, I think I'd had too much wine because now all this wine keeps arriving at my house, and I see on the credit <laughs> card like this. I'm like, why? I thought I paid for this at the time. No, that it keeps charging me. So there needs to be some sort of half-baked idea on how to uh, monitor and control the wine purchases while visiting Napa. It's like, um, you know, on your phone, I think you can lock your phone after a certain point at night which was, or would have been very helpful in our twenties, probably. Yes. Right. So you don't drunk dial people. And, and so this is almost like drunk purchases. You just let Amex know or Visa know, lock my card after. After 2 PM when I'm uh, in this. After two vineyards. Region. I yeah, exactly. Right. Yes. That's a trader guy we used to know had that called the, uh, the trading platform, called them and said he did a lot of business and he had them custom code his version of the software to not let him place any more trades after he lost three trades in a row. Oh. And so that smart. actually the software people were telling me of like, and then he calls constantly like, turn it back on. Turn it I back need on. one more. Yeah. And they're like, you told us to do this. Sorry. So he would yell and scream for three hours. But at the end of the day, he was happy for him. <laughs> uh, all right, buddy. This has been fun. What's next? Thanks. What's on the agenda? Um, spring break coming up. Spring break. Yeah, you'll be there in Cabo and I'll be right down the road in Puerto Vallarta. So that's let's, right. Let's come up with a harebrained idea how we can meet at sea. Wait, I was going to say, we'll halfway. just, um, uh, I'll take a tin can, you'll take a tin can, and we'll just find a string that's long enough and, and do it old school. I'm going to rent a Hobie cat and sail up there. That's what I'm going to do instead. You paddleboard. You're I'll in better shape than me. You paddleboard and, down. And I'll go searching for Marlin. Yeah. Searching for Marlin. Um, all right. Tell everyone where they can find your good stuff. Yeah. Sidecarfinance.com. Um, or you can follow me uh, or, or find me on LinkedIn, Bryce Emo, Sidecar Finance. 
Thank you so much. Where where did the sidecar name come from? Okay, sidecar came from my good friend uh, Marty um, from uh, from college. Actually, we lived together in our twenties. We were out one night in Chicago, as one does, you know, bar to bar, would have you. And um, I passed by a motorcycle and a sidecar, and I said. Marty, one day I'm going to buy a motorcycle and with a sidecar and he's short like I am. And I'm like, we're going to tour the countryside. And uh, so over the course of the last 15 years, one of us would have a rough day or I would call him and say, Bruce, never give up on the dream. We're going to have a motorcycle <laughs> on a sidecar. I'd send him a picture. So being an entrepreneur has always been a dream of mine. And uh, and so sidecar, you know, clearly it's a great concept of um, you know, working alongside someone, helping them, to, you know, tour the the markets and navigate the space. And so it was, uh, I guess, a, a double entendre. Is that right? Yeah. You need to go down to uh, Universal Studios and they have the uh, Hagrid ride. I think you ride in the sidecar. Oh, the, the roller coaster is like a motorcycle and a sidecar on the roller coaster. So get a picture of you doing that and put it up on the website. That's a great idea. Thank you. Um, Thank you. There's my hair brain. I'll I'll come down there. I, I enjoy myself a good coaster. As, uh, do <laughs> as do we. All right. Bryce Emu, everybody. We'll talk to him soon. Thank you, buddy. Thanks, pal. Talk to you soon. Okay, that's it for the pod. Thanks to Bryce. Thanks to Jeff Berger for producing. Enjoy the Masters. Get ready for no vol on Thursday and Friday as traders are staring at that screen versus the trading screen. Uh, we'll see you next week where we have Totem Assets' Andrew Strasman coming on Talking Trend. Peace. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is not an offer to buy or a solicitation to sell a security. The podcast is a discussion pertaining to one or more investment strategies and or asset classes and is not a discussion of any specific offering, past or present, of securities. As a reminder, there is no guarantee that any investment or strategy will perform as targeted. Past performance is no guarantee of future performance and any investment involves risk of the loss of some or all principal invested. The podcast contains statements intended for educational and hypothetical purposes only and is not to be construed as a promise of performance. Information presented herein reflects the opinions of the speakers and is from sources believed to be reliable, but all information is subject to change. You should always speak to your finance and or tax professional prior to investing. Securities offered through Emerson Equity LLC member FINRA SIPIC. Only available in states where Emerson Equity LLC is registered. Emerson Equity LLC is not affiliated with any other entities identified in this communication.